We're continuing continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. And we've reached the point in the Gospel, chapters 18 and 19, where that message is being communicated through the events of the cross, which is the keystone event in, in the history of the cosmos. Uh, so these are, these are really rich and important uh, passages um, to talk about something a whole lot less important. Uh, I've been watching a show on HBO called Hard Knocks. I don't know if any of you watch it. Uh, let me warn you. Uh, it, basically, it follows one NFL team through its preseason. They're doing the Detroit Lions this year. And uh, just let me warn you before you run out and watch it that uh, these guys are not uh, soft-spoken. Um, but it's an interesting environment uh, watching them as they're trying to get ready for the season. And to me, it seems like everything centers around the idea of failure or success. And there is very much in this situation a pass-fail metric. You either win a game or you lose it. That's really ultimately all it boils down to. Whatever else you may do right or wrong in a game, ultimately the truth of your success or failure is going to be inevitable. It's going to be obvious. I would suggest that that's actually how life works. I think we would like to think that there's some kind of a sliding scale, that someone up there is grading on the curve And when we think this way, we often deceive ourselves into uh, putting ourselves in a much higher position than we should. We think we are passing when we're not. We think we are on the success side of things when we're not. That's what happened to Peter in the passage we're going to look at today. We're in John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 27, and I've titled today's message, Our Failures, His Success. Let's start in verse 15. But Simon Peter was following Jesus along with another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter stood at the gate outside, so the other disciple, the one who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the gatekeeper and brought Peter in. So Peter was uh, following Jesus. We, we pick this up right after the arrest of Jesus. We saw that last Sunday where this crowd, there's, I believe, Roman soldiers there, and there's also officers that the chief priests and the Pharisees have sent to, to get Jesus arrested. And eventually, they arrest Jesus. Peter first tries to defend him. He takes out a sword. He chops off the right ear of Malchus, uh, a slave of the high priest. Uh, And Jesus rebukes Peter. Put that sword back in its sheath. I have to take the cup the Father is giving me to drink. Or he asks it as a rhetorical question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And no doubt Peter is uh, stunned by the events. Uh, And and the rebuke from Jesus has him... uh, completely confused. He was going to prove to Jesus how much he could depend on him and that he was ready to die for him and fight to the death to defend him and Jesus shuts him down and that's where we pick it up. 
John's the only gospel writer that tells us that before Jesus was taken before Caiaphas and the, and the Sanhedrin, he was first taken to Caiaphas' father-in-law's house, Annas, who had been high priest but was not currently in that position. John tells us that, and he ends by saying that they take him off to Annas' uh, house. And now we pick it up here with, with Peter following. So even though he's confused and even though he's very worried about Jesus. He doesn't scatter like the rest of the disciples. He actually follows Jesus, uh, probably at some distance, to uh, stay safe. But he wants to be ready to help Jesus if, if there's a moment where he can step in and do something to help him. John is also the only gospel writer that tells us that there was another disciple who went there. There's some debate about the identity of this other disciple. Uh, many people believe it's John himself, the author of this gospel, the son of Zebedee. Uh, some people argue that it isn't. Uh, but I think uh, probably the, the weight of the evidence favors John, the son of Zebedee. That same term, the other disciple, is used later on in chapter 20 when Jesus rises from the grave and Peter runs to uh, the gravesite to see if his body is there. Uh, in that passage, four times, John uses the exact same phrase to refer to himself accompanying Peter. We know from the other Gospels the identity, but in John 20, he just says the other disciple went with Peter to the tomb. Um, and some, the objection of many to this is that term that this disciple was known to the high priest. That term was known in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That phrase generally means close friend. And a lot of people say, how would some fisherman from up in Galilee be a close friend of one of the most powerful figures in life in Jerusalem? But it might not be as far-fetched as you think. First of all, John and James, uh, their family seem to have a more thriving industry going than Peter and Andrew. Because we're told in Mark 1.20 that uh, they were fishing along with the other employees of their father. So their father was doing well enough to have employees. And to say, no, he just, they were just up in Galilee. They were uninterested in the political atmosphere in Jerusalem and all that. Um, I think if we look at the story, it seems clear that James and John had political aspirations. In Mark 10, 35 through 45, we hear the story of how they both went up to Jesus and said, can we secure for ourselves spots on your right and left when you come into your kingdom? They were clearly interested in positions of power, and it wasn't just them. In Matthew 20, 20 through 28, we're told about their mother going to Jesus and trying to do that. Jesus, could you sit my kids one side and the other of you in your kingdom? Uh, so to say that just because they lived in Galilee, they might not have had connections and interest in the political life of Jerusalem uh, isn't quite true. And one more little bit of information. There's no way to know the veracity of this. But Eusebius, the early church father in his ecclesiastical histories, uh, he quotes Polycrates. Uh, and this guy apparently had said that John, son of Zebedee, was a priest, which would be another point of connection that might connect him to the high priest and his family. So because of all of these, the weight of evidence probably favors um, 
John being the other disciple. It doesn't really matter though. Some other disciple was with them and uh, was known to the high priest and because of that he was able to go right in uh, and I, I assume even go right in inside with the proceedings that were going on inside uh, because uh, how else would we know what happened in there? Uh, so it makes sense that John's the only one that tells us about what happened inside at Annas's uh, house because maybe he was in there with them. Um, but he gets there. He, he can come in. There's no problem. He's known. He's uh, whoever he is. But he notices that Peter stays outside because Peter doesn't know anybody there. And uh, he sticks out like a sore thumb and, and isn't about to try to just waltz right in. Nobody knows him. So this other disciple uh, goes and talks to the gatekeeper. We find out in the next verse the gatekeeper is a servant woman. Um, but uh, she's in charge of the gate and making sure nobody gets in that shouldn't be inside. He goes and, and says, oh, he's okay. Let him come on in. So Peter is able to come into the courtyard, the outer courtyard. Um, that took a lot of courage for Peter to do that. He's basically on his own. And he can't appeal to any kind of friendship with the family of the high priest. Uh, he's literally somebody nobody there knows. And they have just arrested Jesus and are carting him off in the middle of the night. Uh, I'm sure when he walked into that courtyard, he felt like he was walking into the lion's den. Let's keep going. Verse 17. Then the servant girl, the gatekeeper, tells Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? He says, I am not. Now the slaves and officers were standing, having made a fire with coals, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. So we get to the first denial of Peter. Jesus, earlier that evening, has already told Peter, you're going to deny three times that you know me. And Peter said, no way. That's impossible. But we come to the moment of truth. He is in there. The woman at the gate who's supposed to make sure nobody gets in that shouldn't be in says, wait a minute. You're not one of this guy's disciples, are you? And I'm wondering what kind of thought process went through Peter's mind at that moment. I suspect he didn't give it too much thought. But he denies it. He says, I'm not, I'm not a disciple of this person. And I bet in his mind he thought, this is a little white lie. And there are examples in the history of Israel of uh, people who said lies, told lies. Like, for example, David lied about being on the side of the Philistines when he was uh, hiding out among them. So, uh, you know, maybe it's that, not that big a deal. I'm just, uh, it's a little white lie. I'm going to pretend like I'm not with Jesus. So that I can be here if Jesus needs me later. I can, I can, just a small white lie and I will be available to Jesus when he needs me later. So I'm sure in his mind he thought, this is fine. I'll just say it right now. That'll be the end of it. Nobody needs to ever know about this. And I will guarantee my ability to stick around and help Jesus uh, in this crisis. And John sets the scene for us. He's not the only gospel writer that does this. Apparently it was cold. April in Jerusalem at night, it would get cold. 
so they have made uh, some fire and they have a coal fire going and uh, they're standing around the fire warming themselves. The other, uh, the other gospels tell us that after the first question, Peter kind of made his way closer to the gate. Uh, so maybe this fire was a little closer to the gate and obviously he's kind of preparing for a quick getaway if he has to run. But this, this made me think. Let me ponder a question with you. When Peter first denied Jesus, he likely thought of it as a white lie that would allow him to stick around to help Jesus later. How have you experienced similar rationalizations with your own sin? Don't we do that? Don't we figure out ways to justify, yeah, I know it's not the right thing, but something, some greater good is going to come of this, right? Let's keep reading, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So, and John is very masterful about this. The other three Gospels tell us uh, about Peter uh, one, two, and three, uh, all three denials in a row. But John breaks it up and tells us something nobody else tells us about. What's going on inside Annas' house? Uh, and that's a great way of telling a story, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're reading books of fiction or, or books, it, it's much more interesting if you kind of go back and forth between characters and what's going on here while something else is going on. And you can do that. Uh, and, and John does that in this uh, event and what he does is create a real, a real contrast between what's going on with Peter and what's going on with Jesus. So we're back inside. And in here, uh, the high priest, and that's, they're referring to Annas as high priest, even though he wasn't technically high priest. It's kind of like we do with, if you've ever been president, we still call you Mr. President. Uh, and in Jewish minds, you know, uh, numbers uh, mention basically that the high priest was supposed to serve for life. Um, so the, they, in their minds, if you've once been a high priest, you're, a, you're to be addressed as high priest. Uh, so Annas is questioning Jesus, and this is what we're told. He questions him about his disciples and his teaching. It's interesting the order there, because it seems like asking about his disciples is more important than his teaching. And I think that fits uh, someone from the priestly side of things. Now, the Pharisees, we, knew, we know, had a big problem with Jesus' teaching. In fact, that was their point of contention with Jesus because their claim to power in Jewish life was that they were the experts on the Bible. They were the ones people went to to find out what the Bible says and to understand and interpret the commandments, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And Jesus was challenging them. And pointing out how they were mistaken in their traditions. And how they had even invalidated the commandment of God to uh, raise up their own traditions. So the Pharisees very much cared about what Jesus was teaching because he was undermining their power. The Sadducees' power was not really uh, dependent on their teaching. They weren't uh, considered the teachers. They were the guys who ran the temple. And the way they got to do that was uh, they convinced the Romans that they were going to keep the peace and they were the best Jewish figure to be put into the position of high priest and they surrounded themselves with people with similar mindsets. These are the guys we call the Sadducees. And they didn't agree with the Pharisees on just about any of their teaching. 
They didn't believe there was an afterlife, the Pharisees did. They didn't believe that there was a final judgment, the Pharisees did believe that. They did not believe there was such a thing as angels or demons, the Pharisees did believe in all of that. In fact, the Sadducees said the only books we're going to say are word of God are the five books of Moses. We don't accept the authority of anything else. The Pharisees accepted the full Old Testament canon. In addition to that, they believed that their oral tradition of the rabbis who had taught in the past had the same authority as the scripture itself. So they had a much broader sense of what was authoritative. So in first century Judaism, there was a whole lot of variety about teaching. And Annas is not that concerned about the teaching itself. What he really wants to know is how many people are following this guy. Because Jesus is not part of the power structure he has constructed carefully over his whole life. He knows who's who. He knows who's in power. And he's really concerned about Jesus. Who all is listening to you? Tell me about your disciples. Let's keep reading verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather. And I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask the ones who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the, one of the officers standing by slapped Jesus saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I spoke wrong, bear witness to the wrong. But if I spoke rightly, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Normally at this time, and this is probably true to this day mostly, when you're standing before somebody who has authority and you're being brought in in some kind of a trial situation where a determination of guilt is a possible outcome, you tend to be very meek and you tend to be very respectful to the people you're before because you're hoping for clemency, right? That's generally the way people react. But Jesus is not cowed at all. He doesn't shrink back and he doesn't uh, cower in the face of this powerful political figure that has him before him. When he asks him about his disciples and his teaching, Jesus actually challenges this whole situation. Because in Jewish law, if you were going to bring an accusation against someone and certainly an accusation that was meant to result in a death sentence which is what they're seeking, you couldn't establish that based on the testimony of the person you were accusing. It had to be based on eyewitness testimony. The, the law of Moses was very clear. You need the testimony of two or more witnesses to be able to condemn a person to death. And Jesus challenges that. He says, why are you asking me? You can't build a case on anything I tell you. You need eyewitness testimony. And he's very open and honest about it. I've not been secretive about any of this. I've always been in very public contexts, in the synagogue teaching. And when I come here to Jerusalem, I go to the temple courts. I go to the places where all the Jews gather. 
And I have openly said everything I've said. If you want to build a case against me, Jesus doesn't even say, ask this person in particular. He says, ask anyone. Pick whoever you want. Ask anybody out there who's heard what I've said and build your case off of that. Find your eyewitnesses and build a case against me. And he challenges Annas because Annas is, is acting wrongly. This kind of quick, hidden, middle of the night meeting behind closed doors where there's no clear reason for the arrest and then trying to build a case by interrogating the person you arrested rather than actually having a case to begin with. Jesus challenges all of that. You want to know, ask anybody. I have not kept any secrets. And then one of the officers is upset. He wants Jesus to cower, and he won't. So he slaps him, and I, I bet Jesus is still bound at this point. And even then, Jesus doesn't back off. Even then, Jesus doesn't step back. He challenges the guy who just slapped him. If what I said is wrong, you be an eyewitness to what I did wrong. You build a case against me right now. What justified what you just did? What did I say that is not exactly true? And if I said what is true, why are you hitting me? It's a strange moment when some insolent idiot slapped God Almighty and he wasn't right at all and Jesus challenges even that and that's the nature of Jesus he didn't come to say you're fine just the way you are keep going you're doing great he came to confront our problem and we have a problem sin is a real problem and he came to bear witness to the truth. And he does it even when his own life is at stake. He never backs, backs down. He never steps back from boldly speaking the truth. Annas knows they got to kill him. He's just as much as told him that anyone and everyone in Jewish life has been listening to him. This isn't a small secret uh, movement. This isn't some fringe thing going off in a corner here. He's been doing this very publicly and he knows this is a problem because he doesn't know a thing about Jesus. And people are flocking to him. Now this whole procedure is meant to happen in the dead of night and they will be at Pilate's praetorium at dawn. At 6 a.m. they're going to be there with Jesus and they're going to push this through and have Jesus crucified before people are awake enough to know what's going on. This was not the whole people rising up and bringing Jesus in to be crucified. This was a manipulation of those in power to kill him quickly before anybody knew what was happening. They were guarding their power. Annas saw Jesus as a threat to everything he had accomplished and built in his life. And we may look at Annas and say, well, what a wicked man. But you know what? Jesus presents the same challenge to you and me that he did to Annas. 
In what ways do you think Jesus threatens the things you are trying to build in your life? Let's keep reading verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they told him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. I love this uh, account because it's found in all four Gospels. And this is probably one of those stories in the Gospels that has the strongest earmarks of genuine history. Because in every single one of the four accounts, there are details in one Gospel that are not present in any of the other three. And that happens in all four of them. And that's what happens when you're dealing with real history. When you're talking to eyewitnesses and you're gathering information, some people remember some bits of the thing. Some remember other bits. And when you put it together, you share things that all fit together, but each one has details that the other doesn't. That's exactly how this uh, works out. Um, we're told in the other Gospels that there was kind of a, a progression to this, that servant girl who was watching the gate. By the way, John's the only one that says she was watching the gate. Uh, but that servant girl then later on goes on and talks to other people uh, who are there and says, there's something fishy about this guy. So this second challenge comes because she has been talking to others about it. And the challenge, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Uh, in other gospels uh, accounts, there's more conversation. There are more details about it. Uh, but basically the challenge is clear. Uh, are you one of his guys? And he denies it. And again, John gives us a very short version. So the other gospels have a little more detail in what Peter said in response. But basically, it's a denial. I do not. And suddenly Peter is scrambling what he thought was a white lie that would just blow over and be done and gone and I can be here to help Jesus, uh, suddenly it starts escalating. And now it isn't just some servant girl at the door. Now it's the officers who've arrested Jesus that are asking questions. And he's very, uh, very much becoming uh, aware of how dangerous a situation he finds himself in and it hasn't just gone away and it's just getting deep getting worse and he's digging himself in deeper I guess he figures at this point uh, in for a penny in for a pound I have I have started this path and I'm gonna stick to it and surely it'll work out I'll just one more lie and I'll, that'll be it and I'll be able to be here to help Jesus keep doing it this way even though I know it's not the right way I'll keep working at it surely it'll work this time verse 26 one of the slaves of the high priest a relative of the one of whom Peter had cut off the ear says didn't I see you in the garden with him Peter denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed John is the only one that knows or tells us that uh, this third question to Peter comes from somebody who was a relative of Malchus, the guy whose ear Peter cut off, and that he was a slave of the high priest. Not only that, but he's the only one that indicates to us that this guy was participating in the arrest because he was in the garden. 
The other Gospels tell us different details about this. That they start talking about, wait a minute, we hear you talk, and that's not the Jerusalem accent. You, you sound very much like a guy that lives in Galilee. You have to be a Galilean, which means you're probably one of his guys. All of that is part of the conversation that leads to this guy speaking up and saying, wait a minute, aren't you the guy that just chopped off Malchus's ear? Didn't I just see you swinging a sword? Well, John is merciful. He just, he doesn't even quote Peter's words. He denied it again. That's all he says. The other gospels tell us a little more. He started calling down curses on himself and swearing. He was trying to, at this point, he's scrambling to save his skin. And he is saying anything and everything to convince those people that he is not a disciple of Jesus. May God strike me dead, I swear, on my mother's grave. I don't know anything about him. Other details from the other Gospels are heartbreaking. It seems that right then is when they were moving Jesus from Annas' house to Caiaphas' and Jesus and Peter lock eyes. Luke tells us that he's still speaking when the rooster crows. What a failure. Can you put yourself in Peter's shoes where he had gone into this with the best of intentions? He didn't have to do this. He could have just scattered like everybody else, but he wanted to help Jesus. He wanted to be there, and the end result of it is utter, utter failure, so much worse than what any of the other disciples have done. He's dug himself a hole. I'm sure at this point Peter thinks there's no getting out of this one. Jesus heard me swear that I don't even know him. How do you come back from that? The amazing thing of Peter's story, and that's why I think all the gospel writers talk about it, is that he is a perfect illustration of why we need Jesus. He was broken. And he thought he was, he was the good guy. He thought he was the hero of the story. He thought he had at least chosen the right side. But when it came down to it, he realized, I'm not on God's side, I'm on my side. I'm just as much a sinner as anybody else. It's me first, not the kingdom of God first. Peter's third denial made it clear that he valued himself more than Jesus and his kingdom. Is the same true of you? And how do you think this affects what Jesus can do in your life? We want to believe that we're the heroes in the story of our lives. It's heartbreaking to realize that we're actually the villains. That we, not they, we are the problem. 
that we are the ones who need rescue and forgiveness. We'd like to think we're better than others. They do wrong things that we feign outrage at. We try to point out things we're doing right that they're not doing. And who are we kidding? We're just as bad. It's just a different flavor of bad. Our evaluations are extremely selective. Peter realized it that night when he denied three times, the third time amid oaths and swearing that he even knew Jesus. He realized that he was a sinner and that he needed Jesus, not the other way around. He thought he was going to serve Jesus. And uh, that teaching began earlier that evening. Jesus kicked it off by washing Peter's feet. You remember his reaction? You're never washing my feet. I serve you. You're the Lord. You don't serve me. Well, at this point, if Peter has any path forward with Jesus, he's going to need Jesus to serve him. He's going to need Jesus to restore him. Jesus doesn't need us. We need him. Now, once Peter realized this, though, Suddenly, he became something different. You know, eventually, Peter stood in front of the whole crowd of Jews, including that whole Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death, and very boldly proclaimed who Jesus is and challenged them to repent and believe. Everything changed once he realized that he had nothing in and of himself that he just needed Jesus. We're told by tradition that eventually Peter did give his life for Jesus. He ended up being crucified and tradition says he even asked to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy of dying in the same manner as his Lord. Once Peter realized all he had to offer Jesus was his sinful need Then Jesus was able to do amazing, world-changing things through his life. Are you willing to give up your pretense and turn to Jesus so that he can share his own rightness with you? We're going to sing a song of invitation. I want to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard this morning. I want to remind you, you may have spent your whole life trying to convince yourself that you're fine, that you don't need anything. Let me tell you, that is a delusion. You need Jesus. (coughs) And be honest, push comes to shove, it's going to be you first and then everything else. Only Jesus can change you from the inside out. Only he can work his uh, work in you and transform you from the inside out so that you become something you are not currently. If that's you this morning, I want to ask you to have the courage to say, Jesus, I want to come to you in faith. I want to surrender my life to whatever you have in mind. 
Do your work in me the way you did with Peter. Maybe you already know Jesus and this has been a reminder to you of something in your life that you need to make right. Whatever God puts on your heart, this is your time to do something about it. Let's all stand. We have some people that will be helping us in the back on either side. And they are there simply to take your hand, share with them what is on your heart, and let them pray with you and encourage you. Please come while we sing.